0: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. The Supreme Court recently announced that it will hear three important cases involving subpoenas that try to get access to President Trump's financial records. The court will hear those cases in March 2020. And litigation continues about whether former White House counsel Don McGahn must obey a House subpoena and testify about the Mueller investigation. The next hearing in that case is set for January 3rd. Here to help us understand the constitutional dimension of these important subpoena cases and explain their crucial implications for congressional and executive power are two of America's leading experts on the subpoena power and the separation of powers. Steve Vladek is the A. Dalton Cross Professor in Law at the University of Texas School of Law. He co-hosts our very popular sister podcast, National Security Law, and he writes widely Including for SCOTUS blog, where he recently wrote about the financial records subpoena case. Steve, it's great to have you back on the show.
1: Likewise, Jeff, thank you for having me.
0: Andy Greywall is professor at Iowa Law. A tax expert, Professor Greywall recently wrote the George Mason Law Review article, The President's Tax Returns, and was a graduate tax fellow at Georgetown. Uh, he also has written widely about these cases. Andy, thank you so much for joining. Glad to be here. Steve, we have four cases to discuss, and let's begin with Trump v. Mazars, which is a subpoena for financial records from President Trump's accounting firm issued by the House Committee on Oversight and Reform. What are the constitutional issues at stake in that case, and where does it stand?
1: Yeah, I mean I think Jeff the the Mazars case or at least the Trumpy Mazars case which I think might better be understood in this conversation as the DC circuit case um may present the constitutional separation of powers question in these cases at the highest level of generality. Uh, as you noted, in April of 2019, the House oversight, uh, Committee on Oversight and Reform issued a subpoena to Mazars for records relating to um, President Trump's financial records and the records of several of his business entities from both before he took office and while he was in office. Um, the president sued uh, to enjoin Mazars from complying with the subpoena. Um, and I think what's important to stress off the top is the claim was not that these financial records or protected from some particular presidential privilege. Rather, the president's challenge, at least in this case, all along, has been that Congress lacks the power to subpoena these kinds of records period, basically that um, the House needs some kind of legitimate government interest um, to subpoena these kinds of personal records um, and that doing so in this context just doesn't meet that threshold. Um, The district court disagreed with President Trump and declined to enjoin the subpoena. Um, He appealed pretty quickly to the D.C. Circuit. Um, Back in October, a divided panel of the D.C. Circuit agreed with the district court and refused to enjoin the subpoena. Um, Judge David Taitle, joined by Judge Patricia Millett, uh, wrote a pretty lengthy opinion explaining that Congress did indeed have a legitimate legislative purpose for the subpoena, in particular that it was part of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform's investigation into whether Congress should amend or supplement current ethics in government laws, especially when it comes to the president's own potential investment in businesses that are subject to government regulation. Um, That was over a dissent by Judge Naomi Rao. Uh, Judge Rao's dissent argued pretty, um, I think, assertively um, that Congress can only issue this kind of subpoena, that is to say a subpoena for personal financial records that might relate to and indeed might implicate um, the – Individual whose records are at issue um, in the context of a formal impeachment inquiry, um, and that outside of the context of a formal impeachment inquiry, she concluded Congress lacked the power to issue this kind of a subpoena. Um, the president then sought rehearing on Bonk from the full DC circuit uh, in, I want to say, what, late November? Um, Actually, yes. Yeah. So, November 13th, uh, the D.C. Circuit, div- uh, dividing eight to three, uh, denied the president's petition for re- rehearing on banc. Judge Rao was joined in dissent by Judge Katzis and Judge Henderson. Um, and then the president filed uh, both a petition for certiorari and an application for a stay. Um, and the Supreme Court first granted the application for a stay uh, just before Thanksgiving. Um, and then, as you say, granted certiorari. And I think the the way that the issue is framed um, in the Mazars, case is perhaps the sort of the broadest uh, framing of this whole question, which is um, does Congress have the power? Um, in the context of a sort of regulatory as opposed to impeachment inquiry, to issue a subpoena um, for personal financial records of the president or, frankly, any other officer um, who is subject to the impeachment power. Um, and I think that's a, you know, at that level of generality, I think it's pretty easy to see why the answer to that question is going to have pretty significant implications going forward for Congress's ability to conduct oversight of executive branch officers.
0: Andy, in your article in the George Mason Law Review, The President's Tax Return, uh, you look at the uh, Mazar's case and you say a statute cannot transcend the constitutional limits on Congress's investigative authority. Congress enjoys a near automatic right to review a president's tax returns only through a proper impeachment hearing. And then in your really thoughtful commentary on the Mazar's case, you say that the majority opinion is well-written. and. Carefully reasoned, I find much of it persuasive. However, there are weak points in it which could lead SCOTUS to go the other way. And you find some of the criticisms of Judge Rouse' dissents overblown, and you and you suggest a, a way that it could have been improved. So, so tell us what you think of the majority opinion and Mazars. What 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 are the limits and scope of Congress's? Uh, power to subpoena, including the need to establish a legitimate legislative purpose, and then tell us what, what you think of Judge Rao's dissent.
2: Yeah, so Congress surely has an exceptionally broad power um, to investigate. Uh, a peculiar question raised here is to what extent can it investigate or subpoena the President of the United States. As a majority properly recognize, recognizes, uh, Congress investigating or demanding disclosures from the President is different from demanding disclosures from a private citizen or a corporation. And this sets sets up, I think as Steve nicely summarized, some key constitutional questions, including to what extent could Congress, for example, demand that the president divest his business assets? If that is a proper subject for legislation, then inquiries into his assets and holdings seem much more reasonable because some legitimate legislation can arise From These subpoenas. If, however, Congress is highly limited in how it can uh, regulate the president, then these sorts of information requests do not perhaps plausibly lead to potential legislation. If that is so, if these inquiries aren't related to potential constitutional legislation, uh, Congress would need to rely on the impeachment power. And as Judge Rao, I think rather forcefully, but also perhaps uh, overstatedly a little bit, she emphasized that uh, Congress had not invoked its impeachment power here. What they were really doing is not performing oversight, but rather trying to duplicate an executive branch investigation. In that context, where Congress is investigating a particular person for law violations, The proper source of authority is the impeachment power, not the oversight power. And this particular committee, according to Judge Rao, had not received that authorization from the the House as a whole.
0: So, Steve, I hear Andy say that uh, for Judge Rao and for for those who might be skeptical of the subpoena power in this case, uh, Congress has to establish a legitimate legislative purpose. And Andy suggests that Judge Rao at least could have said clearly that the legislative power uh, I'm quoting from his, his his tweet, doesn't include the power to execute the law and this is an attempted at law execution rather than investigation that could lead to possible legislation and therefore the impeachment power has to be invoked to save the subpoena. Uh, what, what what do you think of that argument and, and, and what are the Supreme Court cases against it?
1: Yeah, I mean I think the, it, it's, it's, it's the smartest version of the argument, Jeff. But I think it falls – it runs into one pretty significant trap, which is – you know, If we accept, as I think Andy does, although of course he can and should speak for himself, that Congress's powers don't just extend to regulation but also to oversight of the executive branch. Um, and, this, you know, that's where I think there actually is a fair amount of Supreme Court case law in point, you know, McGrain versus Doherty from 1927, which cements um, that Congress has the power of inquiry, that is to say the power to basically compel testimony from executive branch officers as part of its oversight function. You know, it seems to me not that much of a leap um, that looking into allegations of misconduct that may not necessarily rise to the level of impeachable offenses um, by a executive branch officers, is within the oversight bailiwick. I mean, let's imagine this weren't the president for a second. Let's imagine that there were serious concerns that a cabinet secretary had been abusing their office for personal financial gain. Um, I have to think that part of – you know whichever committee has oversight authority over that cabinet department – would certainly, as part and parcel of that authority, have the ability, indeed the responsibility, um, to investigate that particular cabinet secretary, which might even include, you know, subpoenaing some of their personal financial records to see if they had, in fact, been misusing their office for those purposes, notwithstanding that Congress also has the power to impeach said officer. Um, And so I guess, you know, where I sort of part ways from Andy, at least where I think I part ways from Andy, um, is the idea that you can draw a bright line between Congress regulatory capacity and Congress's impeachment capacity it seems to me that oversight really is a bridge between those two different worlds um, and that you know there's more latitude when Congress is acting in an oversight capacity um, for Congress to pursue these kinds of records now of course I mean there still has to be relevance to the subpoena um, right and I do think that there's still arguments the president can and should make about individual particular records being protected by various various. various forms of privileges or immunities, but the notion that, you know, it's only once Congress has crossed the impeachment Rubicon that it's allowed to obtain these kinds of records, which is at least Judge Rao's position in her dissent in the D.C. Circuit, Um, I really think Both um, would cripple Congress's ability to conduct meaningful oversight of the executive branch going forward but also at a more basic level um, treats impeachment as a formal distinction from regulation that frankly, Jeff, the Constitution doesn't recognize. I mean the Constitution doesn't say that Congress's powers differ when it's wearing its regulatory hat versus its oversight hat versus its impeachment hat, and I think that's for good reason. So, you know, that's why I think the majority in the D.C. Circuit has the better of this argument um, and why I think at least in this context, the subpoena was at least facially to me appropriate, even outside the context of a formal impeachment inquiry.
0: Andy, uh, what's your response to Steve's suggestion that it's impossible to draw a bright line distinction between oversight and impeachment investigation. And what do you make of Judge Mehta's opinion on the district court version of Trump versus Committee on Oversight Reform where he cited a series of possible investigative goals that uh, Congress might have, putting the president's uh, disclosures within the legislative sphere, such as whether the president's abiding by the Foreign Emoluments Clause, whether he has conflict of interest, that lie within Congress's province to legislate, and also that a congressional investigation into illegal conduct before and during the president's tenure fits comfortably within the broad scope of Congress's investigative and informing powers.
2: I think uh, it may help to distinguish between cabinet departments or other departments and the president himself or herself in thinking about this question. That is uh, the case that Steve mentioned where The Supreme Court said that Congress could issue a subpoena related to the Attorney General. Uh, In doing so, the Supreme Court emphasized that Congress created created the Department of Justice. It oversees the workings of the Attorney General and his department. In that context, the case for oversight seems quite clear. Uh, The the DOJ, in a sense, is Congress's baby. It, It creates it. Congress does not create the president. We, the people, created the office of the president. So the, the threshold or the uh, initial issue as to whether Congress even has oversight authority, general oversight over the president, is different for departments which it establishes. And so that is where I think Judge Rao emphasizes that if Congress is going to investigate the president himself or herself, Uh, It is necessary to rely on the impeachment power as opposed to a general oversight power. By analogy, for example, Congress has not and probably could not pass statutes saying when Supreme Court justices must recuse themselves from particular cases. The Constitution establishes the Supreme Court. uh, The Constitution establishes the presidency. In that respect, uh, Congress's oversight authority is at its lowest. Uh, It is, of course, true that there are potential oversight responsibilities related to the executive branch, and the district court opinion uh, identified several potential things. Some of them, in my view, seemed a little bit flimsy. Uh, the idea that Congress needs the president to disclose his financials to determine whether it should pass a law requiring him to disclose his financials seems a little bit backwards. Uh, we have a, a bipartisan statute, the Ethics and Government Act, in which Congress and the president Reached a compromise on what disclosures must be made. And now we have a committee acting on behalf of the House demanding further disclosures. That seems to invert the order of things. So I was skeptical of that uh, potential rationale.
0: Well, let's turn to the second case that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear, and that's Trump versus Deutsche Bank. This case involves the question whether the Committee on Financial Services and the Intelligence Committee of the House have the constitutional and statutory authority to issue a subpoena to Deutsche Bank, who are creditors for President Trump, uh, demanding private financial records belonging to the president. As the SCOTUS blog has noted, the court took the somewhat unusual step of granting review in the case without receiving a formal petition for review. Steve, how does the Deutsche Bank case differ from the Mazers case? Um, what's the argument for the legitimate legislative purpose here and And do give us a sense of you know how clear the Supreme Court precedents governing these cases are, so listeners have a sense of of whether or not they're likely to be close uh, at the Supreme Court
1: yeah, so I mean the there are some factual differences in these cases so the the Deutsche Bank case um once again is a subpoena from Congress for various financial records, um, both of the president's and of his business entities, um, held by third parties, in this case Deutsche Bank and Capital One, but from different committees. Um, So one is from the Committee on Financial Services and one is from the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Um, And the the subpoenas are not limited to the president's records, also uh, records relating to his family, um, which might go to some degree to mitigate some of the concerns Andy was alluding to about the president um, and affiliated entities. Um, the biggest difference, Jeff, I think between these two cases is that the litigation in this case, which went through the Federal District Court in Manhattan and then the Second Circuit as opposed to the D.C. Circuit, um, has really been focused much more on what we might think of as the as-applied questions, that is to say less about whether in general – Congress has the power to issue a subpoena in this context and more about these specific subpoenas. Um, So, you know, the Second Circuit um, issued this remarkably thorough, you know, 165-page set of rulings um, on these subpoenas on December 3rd that, you know, much along the lines of the D.C. Circuit first says, yes, we agree Congress in general has the power to do this, but then walks pretty carefully through a much more specific analysis um, of whether the particular subpoenas these committees issued were sufficiently tailored to account for the president's unique Concerns on the other side of the equation. Um, In a couple of contexts, the majority even suggested that there might need to be some remand to the district court for at least some further development of the subpoena and for some narrowing. And you know, Judge Livingston, who dissented from the majority decision in the Second Circuit, her dissent's very different from Judge Rouse. Right? She is not um, attacking Congress's power in general to issue these subpoenas. She's much more focused on the argument that where the president or at least his records are at stake. Um, there ought to be a much higher burden on the subpoena requester, that the courts must sort of um, scrutinize the subpoenas with much greater care and basically that you know if the subpoenas are going to issue, they should be as narrow as possible under the circumstances. And then she tries to suggest ways in which she thinks that these subpoenas don't meet that standard. So I think part of why, Jeff, the Supreme Court probably jumped the gun a little bit to take this case along with the Bazar's case – is because I think it might at least superficially appear to the justices that this case provides something of an off-ramp, that if the court isn't inclined to decide the huge mega question about Congress's power in the abstract, um, that there might be a possibility along the lines laid out in Judge Livingston's dissent to sort of sidestep that question by saying, even assuming for the sake of argument Congress has the power in the abstract, you know, we find these particular subpoenas – to be too broad, um, you know, I'm not sure that's going to work for some reasons that we can get into. I mean, just you know, to to sort of start the ball rolling on that. I mean, I think these subpoenas first are fairly specific, at least in light of the purposes that the Financial Services and House Intelligence Committees identified. Um, second, and I think most importantly, you know, I think. Um, I, I think it's going to be hard to convince the court to not at least decide the first question about whether Congress has the power to issue subpoenas like this in the abstract. Um, but you know, my sense, Jeff, of why the court hustled to add this case to this you know March blockbuster day we're now heading for is because this you know presents the issue on a more. Um, microscopic and case-specific level that, you know, for justices who are hoping there might be a compromise available, might be attractive.
0: Andy, what do you make of the differences between the Deutsche Bank case and the Mazar's case? And do you agree or not that it provides an off-ramp? And if the court were to take a more granular approach in this case, what would it look like and what approach do you think it should take?
2: Yeah, I think there is a major difference, and I think uh, especially in terms of how the House framed the subpoenas and the investigations, that is, at least based on the opinion, it sounds like the committees were investigating generally uh, wrongdoing in the financial sector. Deutsche Bank had been fined heavily, as had Capital One, and these these seem to be investigations about the financial system in which uh, the president is an indirect um, player in that is, they're interested in using the president's financial information to investigate more broadly wrongdoing or opportunities for improvement in the banking sector. That's different from at least the row dissent in the D.C. Circuit case where there are various indications that Congress set out looking to investigate the president. That is here, at least on paper, there seems to be a strong record that Congress has a longstanding interest and has taken actions with respect to the financial sector and wrongdoing. So the question here isn't impeachment versus oversight, but rather, rather to what extent, to use a majority's phrase, uh, Congress can use the president as a case study to examine the system. In that respect, this that may be the soft spot for Congress here. That is, even though I think they clearly have an interest in ensuring the integrity of the financial sector, it seems a little bit strange or at least highly coincidental, that the one family they want to examine to determine whether the banking system works is their most significant political rival. It seems a little bit odd that way. Uh, In that respect, the question would be more general. Can Congress, even putting aside the president, if, if Congress wants to investigate Deutsche Bank, Goldman Sachs, or Bank of America, could Congress choose any one family out there and say, we want to know everything about you, They asked for all information on checks written, for example, and use one person as a case study to examine the whole system. That raises broad questions about Congress's authority to subpoena information to fulfill its legislative purpose while uh, respecting the private rights of individuals. And I, I could see how the Supreme Court may answer this case differently from the Mazars case, and also makes me wonder why the two cases were, I believe, consolidated for oral argument.
0: Steve, a- and he does suggest that some judges might be skeptical of using the president's family as a random test case of the financial laws. And that leads me to ask again, what are the relevant precedents? Uh, Judge Mehta, in the Mazars case on the district court, began his opinion by noting an objection by President James Buchanan to an investigation by a congressional committee in the 1860s. Like Trump, Buchanan complained that Congress's real aim was harassment. And what would the court's response to a similar claim be here, and does that complicate the line between general investigation of the efficacy of the financial laws and uh, harassment of the president himself?
1: You know, I think it's the right question, Jeff. and I don't really know how to answer because we don't have a case squarely on point. I mean, the shockingly, the the James Buchanan affair did not produce a rash of of high-level Supreme Court litigation. Um, you know, as as I think most everyone agrees, we only really have one example historically of a appellate decision involving a congressional subpoena for the President's own personal records. And that was the Senate Select Committee decision in the Watergate case. I, I think though, if we if we step back for a second, you know, it's worth asking a question about pretext um, and about the extent to which we do or do not care about whether the government is acting for the reasons it says it's acting or whether we suspect, as Andy, I think, to some degree rightly does, that some of the proffered justifications might in fact be pretextual. Um, and in this regard, I'm struck by the the comparison if, or the contrast Um, between, for example, um, the subpoena cases where, you know, I think it's an article of faith to the president and his supporters that Congress's actual motive should be centrally relevant to how the courts approach this issue with, for example, the travel ban case, the Supreme Court decided last term, or any number of other challenges to executive actions during the Trump administration where the government has been pretty successful in arguing that motive and pretext actually shouldn't Um, be relevant to deciding if the government's proffered um, neutral justifications are the actual ones and whether that's a basis for upholding the, the challenged action. And I guess my reaction is, you know, it seems to me we, at the very least, ought to be consistent about pretext. And if anything, there might even be an argument for being even more um, skeptical of looking to pretext when we're talking about legislative action, so the action of a multi-body entity um, compared to executive action where you have a unitary head. But, you know, I do think that lingering behind all of these cases um, is this question of just, you know, how much should courts take these subpoenas at face value um, and how much should court sort of look at them as, you know, Congress using powers that may in fact be available to it for ends that the court finds distasteful. And I just, you know, I don't know what the doctrine looks like where we hold Congress to a higher standard when it comes to pretext than we hold the president of the United States. It would be to me a little bit ironic if we actually ended up there in these cases specifically.
0: Andy, what's your response to – the concerns about inconsistent approach to pretext and more broadly, how can you imagine the liberal and conservative justices analyzing the Deutsche Bank case? Would they analyze it uh, in similar terms or differently?
2: Yeah, it is difficult because to allude to your prior point uh, regarding doctrine, it is uh, a bit unclear. The cases are filled with statements that we won't look at motives if a legitimate legislative purpose is present, for example. Uh, We won't... Uh, restrict the rights to examine private affairs if a legitimate legislative purpose is satisfied. All those exhortations from the Supreme Court tend to be a little bit question begging because they don't actually draw a line for us uh, between uh, improper personal investigations and oversight. So the state of the law, I think a reasonable person could decide either of these cases either way. Uh, which means, unfortunately or fortunately, we will have to rely on the judgment of the Supreme Court. Now, the Deutsche Bank opinion drew an interesting distinction. I think thus far, uh, there's been a push to ignore all statements and motives and just focus on the language of the subpoena, much as in the same way that uh, there was a push to look at the four corners of the executive order. However, the majority in Deutsche Bank drew a distinction between hidden motives and statements made by legislators, they actually said in determining the purpose of this, we will look at written statements in the congressional record, but we won't, what, we, what we won't do is try to determine the thoughts floating in a congressman or congresswoman's head. And so that might be a potential dividing line accepted by the Supreme Court. They might say, well, we will look at issues in the congressional record, and to make sure things don't go too far, we're not going to psychoanalyze anyone. We're not going to assume motives that aren't in the record. Now, whether the Supreme Court majority, minority, conservative, liberal will accept that approach, I'm not sure because I think, as Steve pointed out, uh, anytime we open the doors to this sort of inquiry, uh, strange results might happen, and I'm not sure we can fashion a coherent doctrine uh, around it.
0: Well, that brings us to the third case that the Supreme Court has accepted for review, and that's Trump versus Vance. And that's a case involving a subpoena issued by Cyrus Vance, the district attorney of New York, which subpoenas the president's personal records, about 10 years' worth of his financial papers and tax returns. Chief Judge Robert Katzman for uh, the Second Circuit in a unanimous opinion said that the president's sweeping claim about pre-indictment immunity, immunity about any of his conduct before indictment, is squarely contrary to history in Supreme Court precedents. He cited uh, the subpoena to President Jefferson in the Burr case. He cited the Nixon subpoena, and he cited the Clinton subpoena, and he said that the last six presidents, dating back to Jimmy Carter, all disclosed to the public their information voluntarily. Now, he did note one distinction, which is that previous cases had dealt with subpoenas from federal courts, and this was a state court, but he said that that was not dispositive. So, Steve, please tell us more about the significance of the Vance case and what Chief Judge Katzman's constitutional ruling was and whether or not you think the Supreme Court will buy it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one way of thinking about this case um, is as if the, the Supreme Court's two big decisions against sitting presidents, U.S. versus Nixon and Clinton versus Jones, had a baby Um, because that's kind of the, you know, this case arises at the confluence of those two. Um, So on one hand, I mean, Jeff, as you say, um, unlike the congressional subpoena cases, with regard to a grand jury subpoena like the one that, you know, Manhattan D.A. Cyrus Vance has issued for President Trump's records here, there's squarely on-point precedent that the president can in at least some circumstances be properly subject to a grand jury subpoena. That is the Supreme Court's unanimous decision in the Nixon-Watergate tapes case of 1974. Um, the tricky part is that this isn't a federal court. This is a state court. And in Clinton versus Jones in 1997, even in the process of holding that a sitting president could be sued civilly for conduct undertaken before he was in office, um, the Supreme Court went out of its way to expressly reserve whether the same thing would be true if the president were sued in state court rather than federal court. Um, and Justice Stevens's opinion for the court alluded to, but didn't really unpack, um, concerns that might arise under the Supremacy Clause if a sitting president could be subjected to, um, you know, coercive litigation in a criminal context in state court, indeed, perhaps even in 50 different state courts. Um, Jeff, before the Vance subpoena even issued, we've actually already had some interesting litigation on whether Clinton versus Jones applies in state court in the Trump context. I mean, so Summer Zervos, um, the former Apprentice contestant, has been litigating a defamation claim against Trump in the New York state courts that has already produced uh, a decision from the trial level court and from the Intermediate Appeals Court that um, just as a president can be sued civilly in federal court for conduct he he undertakes before he's president, um, so too in state court. The question here is what about a subpoena? Is a subpoena different in that regard? Um, And the president's lawyers have really gone, frankly, all in in this case and have argued quite aggressively that both the Supremacy Clause and Article II categorically preclude a state court from issuing any coercive process to any entity, because here the subpoena wasn't to Trump, it was, again, to Mazars, um, for records relating to the sitting president. what I think is really remarkable about this case, Jeff, is I think a point that hasn't gotten a lot of attention, which is you know, the federal government. Um, which is not a party to these cases, filed an amicus brief in support of the president's petition, but on very different grounds. So the the SG's amicus brief um, does not come anywhere close to endorsing the broad theories of categorical immunity that the president's personal lawyers are advancing. The SG's brief is much more about the sort of whether a subpoena to a sitting president in this context, ought to be held to a higher standard of relevance, Um, again, sort of a narrow tailoring type of argument, and whether, in fact, the subpoena in this case was and would meet that standard. Um, And I think it's telling to me, Jeff, that that's the ground on which the SG is choosing to pitch this case, that it's not really about the categorical immunity the president is claiming from any state court litigation. Rather, it's about whether on You know, the sort of the specific subpoenaed issue here is overbroad. That's a very different question and I think would have very different ramifications if that's the question the Supreme Court answers than the question actually presented in the cert petition.
0: So, Andy, help us understand uh, how significant the fact that this is a state court as opposed to a federal court is in light of the Supreme Court precedents for grand jury subpoenas that, as Steve said, do deal with federal courts. And whether you agree with him or not that the president's broad claims of complete immunity are maybe less successful than the SG's uh, claim that the subpoenas have to be narrowly tailored and not overbroad, and then tell us what precedent uh, there is, what support in the case law there is for the idea that subpoenas can't be overbroad when they go to the president, given the fact that overbreath was not a concern that the courts were willing to buy during the Clinton impeachment.
2: Yeah, the role of the state versus the federal is, I think, easier to understand if we had easier facts. If one state decided to arrest and imprison the president of the United States, I think that would be absurd. Why, does, why could one state seize the president of all the United States? On the other hand, uh, to another easy case, if the New York Department of Revenue, their IRS, wants to look at Trump's tax returns on file, I think it would be absurd to say that they couldn't. There's no burden on the president, and surely they can audit returns filed with them. This is somewhere in between those two ends. Uh, I think, as Steve pointed out, they are describing this subpoena, perhaps Trump's lawyers, as closer to actually arresting the president and throwing him in jail, in which case, if we view it that way, then it seems like this should be set aside under the federal supremacy grounds. On the other hand, if this is more like just the state reviewing its own filings with respect to Trump, which I think think is clearly permissible, then it's much easier to understand why this subpoena should be upheld. I do think, though, my concerns with the subpoena, I'm not sure, are suitable for federal resolution. The subpoena itself, the local prosecutor essentially copied and pasted two subpoenas from the House Oversight Committee and the Ways and Means Committee. And remember, those those two committees had broad purposes related to federal oversight of the tax system and ethics legislation. And Mr. Vance copied and pasted their subpoenas and said he needed those same documents, the same requested documents for his investigation. My understanding, as far as it's known, is that his investigation relates to whether the Trump Organization properly recorded a payment to... Michael Cohen on its internal business records. Apparently, there's a city, county, or state business records law that may have been violated. It seems very strange that for this purpose, Mr. Vance would need the exact same materials requested by the federal legislature. However, I'm not, it's unclear to me that that is a question for a federal court to resolve. Maybe this has to be battled out in state court. Maybe uh, Trump has to present uh, a case that that subpoena is invalid according to the New York Constitution. I'm just not sure, but there is this odd fit, uh, it's a of a between the claim documents and the uh, asserted nature of the investigation.
0: We'll turn to the Don McGahn case, our last case in a moment, but I wanna ask you, Steve, how How is the court likely to resolve these three cases? As you both discuss them, they seem to me as I'm, and to our listeners, I'm sure, to be complicated cases with important factual and legal differences. Will the justices resolve them in a single opinion or separately or give us some sense of, of what you expect to see the court do?
1: Well, I mean I think if I, if I knew for sure, Jeff, it would be you know, I'd, – I'd be in the wrong line of business. <laughs> I, I do think um, that we're looking at at least two opinions and maybe even three by the time we're done. I mean I, I just think the questions presented in the Vance case are so meaningfully distinct from the questions presented in both of the congressional cases. Um, whether we end up with separate opinions in the congressional cases or a combined opinion may depend to some degree on what the court does. Um, You know, the only thing I feel relatively confident about, Jeff, is that, you know, this is not going to be another Nixon, U.S. versus Nixon or Clinton versus Jones. I mean, one of the things that's remarkable about those two landmark precedents is that they were both unanimous. Um, And, you know, they were unanimous at least to some degree because they reflected compromises between the more progressive and the more conservative justices. And I just don't see much room for compromise either on the current court or in the current atmosphere. I mean, it's possible that the chief justice, who I think is going to be the median vote in at least one, if not all, of these cases, um, it's possible that he tries to forge some kind of compromise where, you know, he generally sides with Congress but finds case-specific reasons why this particular subpoenas at issue here weren't, Um, satisfactory um, and hopes that that kind of sort of split the difference approach attracts at least a couple of his colleagues to both sides. But, you know, I think for the progressives, you know, they're going to see at least the the big questions about whether Congress in general has this kind of subpoena power and about whether state prosecutors have the same subpoena power that federal prosecutors have vis-a-vis the president. You know, I think the progressives are going to see that as sort of a binary Um, And I'm not sure unless they really think that they need some kind of compromise to attract the chief. I don't know how far they're going to give in. On the flip side, I think, you know, opinions like Judge Rao's dissent really do create opportunity for some of the more conservative justices to dig in pretty aggressively on broad theories of executive power and immunity um, at the expense of either coordinate branches in the congressional cases or the states in the Vance case. And so – You know, Jeff, I I have no idea how this is going to end. The only thing I feel relatively confident about is it's not going to end the way Nixon and Clinton did with unanimous decisions from a, you know, I think very institutionally um, self-aware court. I think this is going to be much messier, you know, and it's going to come down in the middle of the 2020 elections. And so I think befitting the times in which these cases are arriving um, and arising— you know, this is going to put the court in a really messy, sticky position, and I think the chief is going to try to forge a way out. I just have not that much faith that he's going to find one that attracts five votes.
0: Andy, how do you think the subpoena cases are going to turn out before the court? Do you agree with Steve or not that they're not likely to be unanimous like Nixon and Clinton? And if not, why not? Why have these subpoena cases become polarized. Uh, Nixon and Clinton found nine justices who were eager to stand up for the prerogatives of subpoenas and the amenability of the in- executive to investigation. What has changed to make that different if, if these cases do indeed split along ideological lines?
2: Yeah, I'll keep it short because I largely agree with Steve. Uh, definitely advances in its own bucket. And I also don't have a crystal ball. Otherwise, I would be in Vegas right now. Um, <laughs> With respect to these cases, it, it certainly is a case that we saw nine zero 0 previously. We may have five four six three 6 3 or something like that with respect to these cases. Uh, that could mean that these issues are harder, or it could mean that there's a stronger ideological divide. Uh, people have to make up their minds uh, on their own, with respect to how to handle these subpoena cases, I I, have, I am concerned with what the Supreme Court's going to do here. Uh, before they took these cases, I was hoping that they would take one subpoena case, a, a congressional subpoena case, decide it, and then return the other cases to the lower courts to uh, examine in light of the principles established. They've taken both of these cases. But this won't be the end of the matter. Currently in the D.C. District Court, there is subpoena litigation with respect to the ways and means subpoena to the IRS for Trump's tax returns. That raises issues very similar to the Deutsche Bank and the Mazars case. So I'm not sure, is the Supreme Court just going to take every single subpoena case for the next one or five years that relates to Trump? I would have preferred a more cautious approach of taking one and then enunciating principles and letting the lower courts... Uh, sorted out from
0: there. All right, we have one final case to discuss. The Supreme Court has not taken it up, at least not yet, but it is important in its own right, and that is Committee on the Judiciary uh, versus Donald F. McGahn. And the question involves a subpoena issued by the House Judiciary Committee calling on Don McGahn to testify before the committee about whether President Trump obstructed justice in the Mueller investigation. On the D.C. Circuit, Judge Kentaji Jackson ruled that Don McGahn did have to testify, rejecting the Trump's administration claims that the lawyer was covered by broad presidential immunity. Presidents are not kings, she held. Steve, tell us about Judge Jackson's opinion and what the constitutional analysis was, and whether or not you agree with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the this is sort of the next generation, or at least like maybe when I think of it, like the second generation. Um set of questions in these subpoena cases where you know, assuming that the Supreme Court doesn't just categorically foreclose Congress's power to issue subpoenas in this context, what about test what about testimonial subpoenas to White House advisors? Um, And Don McGahn claimed something that the Office of Legal Counsel has called absolute testimonial immunity, um, basically the idea that senior, uh, current and former senior presidential advisors, um, owing to their sort of proximity to the president, their responsibilities, the, you know, the sort of the Article II um, authority for their office, um, are immune from compelled testimony before Congress. Um, Jeff, this is not the first time we've heard this argument. This is the argument that the George W. Bush administration had made before Judge John Bates in 2007 um, in litigation over House Judiciary subpoenas to former White House Counsel Harriet Myers and former White House Chief of Staff um, Andy Bolton, Um, and the sort of you know Judge Bates in that decision had written I think a very thorough, careful, and to my mind you know unanswerable explanation. For why there certainly could be – sorry, Josh Bolton, not Andy Bolton. Um, There could be um, individual sort of privilege assertions that these advisors were allowed to make when they appeared for testimony. But basically putting to bed the idea that there was such a thing as a categorical absolute testimonial immunity – that prevented these advisors from being called to the you know, congressional witness stand for any purpose. Um, now that was only a district court decision. Um, the appeal of that decision was basically settled um, after the sort of intervening election got in the way. But you know, Judge Jackson basically just dusted off Judge Bates' analysis and said, Yeah, I mean this is this is right. That you know, without prejudging particular assertions of privileges or immunities that the witnesses might have in response to specific questions. They can't just categorically refuse to appear solely by dint of the fact that they used to work in the White House. Um, You know, I think that that's the correct answer. It obviously doesn't resolve the third generation questions about individual privilege claims in response to particular questions. Um, But, you know, if and when the Supreme Court decides this first round of cases, assuming it leaves at least some congressional subpoena power intact, you know, I think it's a matter of time before, at the very least, the D.C. Circuit is going to have to settle the, you know, testimonial immunity question as well, and we'll see at that point if there's any appetite on the Supreme Court's part to weigh back in.
0: Uh, Andy, what do you make of Judge Jackson's opinion and its discussion of the Harriet Myers precedent? As Steve said, Judge Jackson quotes. Judge Bates, she says, Judge Bates rejected the executive claim of absolute immunity for senior presidential aides by noting the executive cannot identify a single judicial opinion that recognizes absolute immunity for single presidential advisors in this or any other context. Judge Bates quoted the court's decision, the Supreme Court's decision in Harlow and Fitzgerald, the 1982 case, where the court rejected absolute immunity for executive aides in the context of civil lawsuits seeking monetary damages. And Judge Bates found it telling, I'm still quoting from Judge Jackson, that the only authority that the executive can muster in support of its absolute immunity assertion are two Office of Legal Counsel opinions, which he found, for the most part, conclusory and recursive. So, Andy, are, are, are you persuaded by Judge Jackson's treatment of the Myers precedent or not? And what do you think the right answer is in the McGahn case?
2: Yeah, I think I found the privilege analysis largely compelling, or at least in the in the debate's opinion, so I, I share Steve's summary. I think uh, where the court erred here is even asserting the power to decide the case. That is, like the administrations before it, the Obama administration, the Bush administration, the Trump administration said this is not the sort of claim that courts have the business of resolving. In other words, a congressional committee doesn't have standing to sue the executive branch as here, Don McGann, or an agency. So I that is the issue I think the Supreme Court eventually is going to have to resolve. Three times in the last 20 some odd years, the Supreme Court has said there are separation of powers issues that arise when Congress sues the president. We are not deciding the question, we are just issuing warnings. And I believe that this case or the border wall case or the tax returns case will lead the Supreme Court to finally tell us whether Congress can sue the president over White House uh, testimony, over tax returns, over appropriations powers, claims, and so on. Uh, And I think that's this will not be the final word on on that particular issue.
0: Well, it's time for closing arguments in this extremely uh, substantive and very illuminating discussion of the subpoena cases. And the first one is to you. Steve, how do you believe the Supreme Court should resolve the three cases it's agreed to hear involving the president and the subpoena power?
1: Um, I think it should affirm the Mazar's case. I think it should affirm the Vance case, and I think it should dismiss the Deutsche Bank case as improvidently granted and allow the remand that the majority in the Second Circuit already ordered for further evaluation of the subpoenas in those cases to proceed in the district court. Um, And just to flesh that out a bit, I mean, I think, you know, we ought to sort of step back and think about a world in which Congress did not have the power to issue these kinds of subpoenas. Um, a world in which Congress could only investigate the president and other federal officers in this matter by launching a formal impeachment inquiry, by taking some kind of formal vote that neither the Constitution nor the House's own rules require. Um, you know, and I think a world where Congress can't exercise that kind of oversight is a pretty alarming one, especially against the backdrop that, you know, we're also familiar with of DOJ's own position that a sitting president can't be criminally indicted. If a sitting president can't be criminally indicted and if he can't be investigated except through the initiation of a formal impeachment proceeding, it seems like we're ratcheting up our politics and encouraging not necessarily lawlessness on the part of current and future presidents but at least, you know, less of a concern. That the other branches are going to be playing a central role in ensuring that the president acts consistently with the law. Um, I don't think the Vance case is nearly as important in those terms. I think, you know, a world without the ability of local prosecutors to subpoena a sitting president's financial records is not nearly as disturbing a world to me. But you know, I think the if these principles mean anything, it ought to mean that, you know, Congress is allowed to investigate um, and the political checks that we have relied on for so much of our history to ensure that Congress doesn't get carried away, you know, can do the work that I hope it would do in ensuring that this doesn't become a weapon to be used against every president at any moment in history, but rather a, you know, sort of necessary accommodation for the times we live in.
0: And Andy, the last word is to you. How do you think the Supreme Court should resolve the three cases that it's agreed to hear involving the president and subpoenas?
2: Yeah, with regards to the Vance case, whatever the court does, I hope that it's acts very carefully and recognizes the potential for danger here. We will one day have a Democratic president and you will have a red state, or red, red prosecutor who may subpoena school records, medical records, birth certificates, and so on. And I'm very concerned about this potential opening the door for local prosecutors to harass a sitting president simply for political reasons, especially because, because again, in the Vance case, the prosecutor simply copied and pasted uh, federal subpoenas and issued them. For personal information, which to me uh, does not bear any relation to uh, a business records violation. With respect to the subpoena cases, uh, I believe that the law is uncertain. I think a reasonable person could decide either of them either way. My preference though would be that the court recognizes the more limited oversight role over the president and hold Congress to account if it plans to investigate him. That is, it is not a strong burden to ask a House committee to receive authorization from the entire House to issue a subpoena for the president's financial records and to state the purpose of the investigation. Historically, committees themselves did not have subpoena power. The subpoenas had to come from the entire House. Now we do it a little bit differently. That is, they receive their authorization first and then can issue subpoenas as they they please. But I don't see that as necessary to preserving the rule of law. Uh, We can ask Congress to pass resolutions and make their interests clear before acting. And when they haven't, I believe the court should be skeptical of the resulting subpoenas when they dig into a political rival's uh,
0: finances. Thank you so much, Steve Loddick and Andy Graywell, for an illuminating, a a substantive, and and a deeply civil discussion of these complicated and crucially important subpoena cases You have vindicated the hope of Isaiah. Come, let us reason together. And that's exactly what we've done. Andy, Steve, thank you so much for joining, and happy holidays.
1: Thank you, Jeff. Happy holidays. Thanks,
0: Jeff. Thanks, Steve. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Jackie McDermott and Robert Black. Do please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone everywhere who's hungry for a weekly dose, a bracing dose, an invigorating dose of constitutional debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, and the love of the Constitution and of learning of people across the country like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. So you can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership, or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.